A.W. Tozer once wrote, Jesus Christ knows the worst about you. Nonetheless, he's the one who loves you most. You see, for all of our striving, our longing and lifelong efforts to be accepted and loved by others, God loves us without any of that. He loves us not because of what we can do for him, but simply because we are his creation. And because we're his object of love, the object of his love, we're the recipients of profound blessings that we do not deserve and cannot earn. Every day that we wake up, every beating of our hearts, every breath in our lungs is a blessing we do not deserve and cannot earn. Every morning sunrise, every starlit night, every moment of time we've been given to live on this earth is a blessing we do not deserve and cannot earn. Of course, his salvation is a free gift that we do not deserve and cannot earn. And yet, for those who believe, we get to enjoy that gift, that blessing, for all of eternity, which was his plan for you and me before he created the world and everyone in it. It's staggering, really, when you consider the sheer magnitude of his plan for all of creation. And then when you understand the fact that your part in that plan is crucial to others fulfilling their part in that plan for creation as well. The, uh, the weight, the responsibility that we have as Christians to share what we've been freely given is nothing short of breathtaking, and it starts by living a life that blesses other people. Because, of course, we have to share the gospel with them. That's the greatest blessing of them all. But listen, how we deliver that gospel to the world, right, as those who represent Christ in this world, that is what validates the message in the eyes and ears of those uh, others watching us and listening to us to begin with. It's the difference between them actually wanting what we have or paying no attention whatsoever because the manner in which we live and interact with this world on a daily basis, that is what speaks volumes to those who are watching because how we live our lives is tangible, observable evidence to the world that what we say we believe is actually true when they see it being lived out in your life and in my life, which means all of those blessings that God puts in your life. You understand, those aren't just meant for you to enjoy. Right? The, the time that he gives you, the life he's blessed you with, your ability to express love and bestow blessings, all of that is meant for you to share with other people. Why? So they can know the love of God as you have come to know the love of God. You understand, that's how God distributes his message of love to the rest of the world. Through you being a blessing to others. And so look, if you're not sharing what he's blessed you with, I mean, given, given what's at stake eternally, then you really have to ask yourself why, right? Why in the world, what excuse can I come up with? What, possible justification can I muster up for not sharing what God has freely given me with other people? Is it because you don't have all of the resources other people have? Or because you weren't born into as much privilege as other people? Or maybe because of how your life has turned out, you haven't been treated fairly? Or because you've been mistreated or underappreciated or maybe not loved by others as you should have been? Maybe it's because you don't think you have any influence or you're not qualified to share anything with anyone else. I don't, I don't know. I mean, can we really justify, can we come up with one single solid reason 
why we cannot or should not be sharing the blessings of God in our lives with others. Maybe it's simply because you don't believe you have any of God's blessings in your life to share. Like somehow you've been overlooked by God. Well, listen, a couple weeks ago, we began studying the book of Ruth together. And one of the most glaringly obvious aspects of Ruth's life in that first chapter of her story is the fact that everything in her life, her background, her upbringing, her circumstances, the major events in her life, her relationships, her lack of resources, all of it seemed to be squarely stacked against her. And we looked at all of that in detail last week, so we won't go through all of that again today, but I will say, if you missed that sermon and if you care about this story at all, you should go back and listen to it because there's a lot of backstory there, right? That It'll help you understand the rest of Ruth's story much better, and specifically this second chapter where we begin to see everything that has happened to Ruth, even the suffering. We see that it was not only a part of God's sovereign plan for her life, but it also leads to profound blessings in her life, which begin here in chapter two and continue throughout the book uh, to uh, its culmination in the final chapter. The, The point is, God's plan for Ruth's life, listen, the good, the bad, and the ugly, all of it, was meant for her to learn how to be a blessing to others in order to point them to him, which is precisely his plan for your life as well. You you see, Ruth was born to be a blessing, and so were you. The Apostle Paul wrote, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, Romans 12, 14 through 21. In other words, no matter what happens to you, listen, even the hard stuff, Right? And the people responsible for the hard stuff. He says, bless them. Bless them with blessings you've been given because that is his plan for your life. And we have no better example of that in all of scripture than in the life of Ruth who lives in a manner that is not only a blessing to others, but it causes those who are being blessed by her to become a blessing as well. You see, it's not just that Ruth was a blessing by the way she chose to live her life uh, influence, influencing those around her to become blessings themselves. That was the point, and we'll see today as we continue our sermon series working through this story uh, that that's the case every step of the way. So let's pick it back up where we left off last week and see what uh, living a life of blessing really looks like. Listen, even when it seems like you've nothing to give, nothing to bless others with. Ruth chapter two, we'll begin by reading the first seven verses. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go my daughter. 
So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Okay, the beginning of this chapter is a glimpse into the life of the poorest people in ancient Palestine. And since widows, uh, foreigners, and orphans typically had no way to make a living for themselves in that society, the Mosaic Law provided a means by which they could at least feed themselves. And so it was stipulated in Leviticus 19.9, also in 23.22, that when harvest time came, the owner of a field was forbidden to reap his crops to the very border, the very edges of the field. He was also prohibited from going back and harvesting a sheaf that may have been missed after the first pass. That's all stipulated in Deuteronomy 24, 19. And there were similar provisions set forth in the law concerning the grape harvest and the olive harvest as well, so that the widows and orphans and foreigners could legally go through the fields and orchards that belonged to others and glean what was left over or missed from the initial harvest in order to provide food for the poor. So it was a, it was a system where the poor, listen, uh, they still had to work for their food if they were able, and in that way it provided for those who otherwise could not provide for themselves. And so built into God's law from the beginning was the commandment for God's people to be a blessing to others, okay? Being a blessing was and is and always has been a part of God's design for his people. And so Ruth goes out to glean in the fields during the barley and wheat harvests, and in the process, she ends up in the part of the field that belongs to a man named Boaz, and we'll come back to that in a moment. But listen, Ruth was an alien in a foreign land, and as a Moabite, the traditional enemies of the Israelites living in Israelite society. She had no reason to expect that she would ever be accepted or welcomed by this local population. And furthermore, up to this point in the story, her own mother-in-law, Naomi, as we saw last a couple of weeks ago, is the only family she has, actually doesn't even want her around at this point. Okay, given Ruth's current circumstances and all that she's been through so far, I dare say most of us would be thinking of all the ways we could fend for ourselves at this point, right? And maybe, maybe even work our way back to our own hometown and our own people. And yet Ruth isn't just thinking of herself, as we'll see as the story unfolds. Her desire is to honor and bless everyone around her and actually most of all, her mother-in-law, Naomi. Right? And so instead of simply going out into the fields as Ruth's legal right as both a widow and a foreigner to get some food for herself. Instead, she asks permission from Naomi to go into the field and glean for the both of them. And so after all the hardship, right, all the loss, the hopelessness, the rejection, losing her husband, her father-in-law, any, uh, any system of support for herself without any expectation of being treated kindly or being accepted by the local townsfolk and without the prompting of Naomi, Ruth is determined to help not just herself, but other people, especially those who don't want her around. And unbeknownst to her in the process, she's teaching us how to be a blessing out of your need. 
Because look, if, if the only time we ever blessed other people was after all of our own needs were met, then when would we ever be a blessing to other people? Honestly, I mean, for some of us, probably never, right? I mean, most of us keep going to work every day, right? Why? Because we keep getting bills in the mail that have to be paid. We struggle to create margin in our busy schedules, and when we do manage to eke out a little time for ourselves, we want to do something for ourselves. The fact is, there will always be needs in our lives, okay? Don't let that stop you from being a blessing to other people. You understand, one doesn't preclude the other. Having needs in your own life doesn't preclude you from meeting needs in other people's lives at the same time. Right? You're not being prudent by refusing to bless others when you have needs in your own life. Even though we often look at it that way. No, you're actually being disobedient to God's word. Right? There was no one more needy in this story than Ruth. And yet the first thing she does as soon as they get to Bethlehem is start meeting the needs of other people, not just herself. So I'm just telling you, don't hide behind your own need to keep from meeting the needs of others. As a child of God, you have been called to be a blessing even out of your own need. And I'm telling you, anything less than that is disobedience. Ruth didn't have food to give to Naomi. But she figured out where to get it, and she went about getting it straight away to be a blessing to her mother-in-law. Of course, she could have said to Naomi, you know what, I know there's food out there, I've heard about that, that food that can be gleaned. I just need to pray about it first. Now that would have been ridiculous. To stay home and pray and miss the opportunity to be a blessing and meet a need while others went out and gleaned in the fields, but that's exactly what we do all the time. Like somehow we're being spiritual by saying we need to pray about it first before we help others in need. Now that's, that's not being spiritual, that's being selfish. The fact is, there was nothing more spiritual that Ruth could have done in that moment than to get up off the couch and go out into those fields amongst the people who considered her to be their enemy to glean food for a woman who did not want her to come to Bethlehem to begin with, all the while working harder than anyone else out in the field as the man in charge of the reapers makes it a point to say she's continued from early morning until now except for a short rest all that she could be doing to bless others she was doing. Okay, that was, that was an infinitely more spiritual way for Ruth to spend her time than staying at home and praying about whether or not she should do the right thing. Listen, if every time you have an opportunity to bless someone else, you don't because you have needs in your own life or you feel like you have to think about and meditate on God's word and pray about it first, well, I'm sorry, but you're not being prudent or spiritual. You're being disobedient and selfish. By the way, God doesn't reward or make special concessions for our disobedience or selfishness. If his word commands us to do something, you can pray about it all you want to, but your prayers aren't going to change what his word says. And neither will your need. Doing what his word commands us to do is always the right thing to do, whether you have needs in your life or not. And I'm just going to tell you this next bit is probably going to step on some people's toes. So just remember how much I love you. <laughs> because in addition to claiming 
right, the needs of prudence and spirituality is excuses that we use for sometimes withholding blessings from others. There's the third excuse that I think we wield with great confidence in the American church as to why we don't always bless others as we should, and that's our families, the needs of our biological families at home. Now look, I agree 100% that we're supposed to take care of our own families, right? If you have a wife or a husband, maybe young kids or even aging parents, without a doubt, we are supposed to take care of our own families, no question. But I'll tell you that in the modern church, especially in the evangelical church movement in America, we have come dangerously close to making an idol out of our families. We put our kids' feelings, their activities, their desires above every other need, including the needs of the body of Christ. We put vacation time away with our family above almost everything else. Like family time is the most important time for most Christians today. We treat our family at home as sacred and our family at church as secondary. In fact, if I've heard it once, growing up in church, I've heard it a hundred times, your family is your first ministry except that's not what the Bible says. Luke 14, 26, Jesus said that anyone who does not love him more than his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. In Matthew 12, 48 and 49, when Jesus was teaching the crowds of people and his mother and his brothers showed up outside, his biological family shows up asking to speak to him. He replied to the man who told him, who's my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, the church, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Listen, the hard truth is Jesus put his church family before his biological family. There's a recent Barna study that says most Americans are likely to point to their biological family as making up a significant part of their personal identity with country second and God third. And Christians are no exception where the biological family has usurped God and his family as the primary identity marker according to this study for most churchgoers. Even the most committed Christians in evangelical American churches uh, listed their priorities in order of God my family, biological family, God's family, the church, third, and then others. But if you ask Jesus to make the same list, according to scripture, it would be God and his family, the church, my family, others. Pastor, New Testament professor at Talbot School of Theology, Joseph Hellerman said it this way. He said, our priorities are off when family is more important than church. Jesus' focus was on the family of God, not the biological family. He went on to say, the family of God is not here to serve the interests of our family. Rather, our families are here to serve the family of God. But I just think if we're being honest, we often hide behind the needs of our families at home as an excuse as to why we cannot be a blessing to the family of God like we're all called to be. And again, this is where Ruth stands out in such stark contrast with most people because even when her own sister, Orpah, you'll remember from chapter one, runs back to her family at home where she came from, Ruth ran to the family of God, even though her own people were enemies of the Israelites. She made the family of God her number one priority, and as a result, her life became a profound blessing to those who needed it most when they needed it most, even though... She was in tremendous need herself. She refused to allow that need to keep her 
from being a blessing to other people. Martin Luther once said, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. Let's keep reading, verses eight through 16. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? When you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I'm a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge." Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her and also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. Boaz was a wealthy, powerful, uh, influential man in Israelite society. When verse one says he was a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, <clears throat> that phrase, a worthy man in the ancient Hebrew is translated many places as a, a mighty man of wealth, also as a mighty man of valor, which was typically used to describe great military men. So in addition to being quite wealthy, Boaz uh, may have been a warrior, Remember, this story takes place in the time of the judges. Those were troubled times indeed for the Hebrew people who were often called upon to fight when needed. And yet, if you read the verse in the, uh, the Septuagint, the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, it says that Boaz's name means in the strength of Yahweh. That suggests also a great degree of moral character and integrity in Boaz as well. So this is a wealthy powerful landowner with great integrity and great influence in the community and probably a fighting man as well. He certainly had earned the respect of the people, which makes it all the more compelling that as he shows up to his field, he not only takes notice of this Moabite woman, but great interest in her as well, to the point that he pours out blessings on her far beyond what any poor widow gleaning in a field, let alone a foreigner from the Moabites of all people, would ever expect from a man as wealthy and powerful and respected among his people as Boaz. And although Ruth may have been physically beautiful, we don't know. Listen, what attracts Boaz to her is that he recognizes the same godly character in her, which becomes abundantly clear after she asks him, why have I found favor in your eyes that, that you should take notice of me, right, since I'm a foreigner. But Boaz says, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. How you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. You see, where, where others saw nothing more than a poor, abandoned, widowed, hopeless foreign woman who they didn't understand and had no interest in getting to know, Boaz saw the hand of God at work in a powerful way in a woman who had already brought so much blessing into the lives of others and it captivated him. 
And as a result, he not only speaks the first kind words she's heard since leaving her family in Moab, but he backs up those words of blessing by pouring out material blessings, not on his employees, not on the Hebrew people gleaning in his field, and not on any of the other people from his own community, but on this most unlikely candidate, this young Moabite widow. The last person, by the way, who could ever repay him, the last person his own people would ever say deserves such a blessing, right? The last person any upstanding Hebrew would ever predict a man like Boaz would bless. Yet he doesn't just give her extra food. He gives her dignity. He gives her honor. He gives her a place in his life. And it's not just that he gives her some of all of that. He gives her the best of all of that. Come here, he says. In other words, come and sit with me and my workers. It's an honor. He honors an outsider as though she was one of his inner circle and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. He treats her with a dignity no one ever had before. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves. And do not reproach her and also pull out some from the bundles for her. Some that's supposed to be for us. Give it to her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. Boaz blessed this outsider as if she was a member of his own family. He did what no one would have expected him to. And in the process, he teaches us how to be a blessing outside of your circle. Okay, look, it's one thing to bless those who bless you back. To bless those who uh, you not only like, but those who like you back. Right? It's really not all that hard to be a blessing to those we deem as worthy or deserving of our generosity based on their conformity to our personal preferences. And as a result, if you look at who you bless, I think if we're being honest, it's usually a rather small circle of people. It's the people we've decided best fit in with our circle. But I'm telling you, God wants us to bless those who are not in our circle. Just as Boaz did and just as Jesus did, those who do not fit with our usual crowd, those who aren't like us, those who our circle may not even approve of all the time, those who don't look like us or act like us or understand our ways any more than we understand theirs. Keep in mind, at this point, Ruth knew nothing of the Hebrew God. She didn't understand their religion or culture or customs. She had absolutely nothing to offer them other than her own kindness and a heart that was seeking after God, even if she didn't fully understand it at this point in her life. You see, Ruth may not have been the one person the Hebrew people would have chosen for such a profound role in pointing people to the Messiah, which, by the way, is what her life ultimately does at the end of the book. But she was the one who God chose. And that blessing that she was is what Boaz seems to recognize in her even though she was far outside his usual circle of friends. Now look, we, we have a wealth of archeological evidence, ancient writings, most notable the Mesha Steel. It's an inscribed stone from 840 BC which describes not only the Moabites' worship of the pagan god Chemish, but also their great victory over Israel in battle. And remember, this story was happening during that very time of tribal war and there's tremendous racial and religious tension throughout the region at this point in the story. You can imagine how the Israelites felt about the Moabites. They hated them. Okay, Ruth could not have been any further outside of, of Boaz's circle, yet he didn't only bless this outsider, 
He blessed her with his very best. And that's exactly what we are called to bless people with, our very best, and not just those in our inner circle, but at times even those far outside of our circle. That's the heart of Christ who himself went into the homes of tax collectors and sinners, the lowest of the low, the most marginalized people, the most despised, rejected members of Jewish society, and he blessed them with dignity and honor and the very best that he had to give. And what happened? The leaders, the Pharisees, the teachers, the religious people who thought Jesus should be hanging out with them in their inner circle, they questioned his willingness to choose to hang out with and be a blessing to what they saw as the scourge of the earth. And so indignant, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners, Mark 2, 16 and 17. You understand this, right? Jesus didn't put you on this earth to live a safe, sanitized, religiously comfortable life. No, he put you here to get your hands dirty while blessing others who no one else will, to go where no one else will go, to meet with people no one else wants to meet, to have conversations no one else is willing to have. And listen, we're not just supposed to bless those who are outside of our circle, we're supposed to bless them with our very best. Okay, if Jesus, the son of the living God, can get down on his knees and wash the feet of the most undeserving, sinful, unworthy group of men who he knew hours later would all abandon him, if Jesus was willing to stoop down and wash their filthy feet right before dying for them, then what possible excuse can we proffer to justify not giving our very best to those who need it most? Now hear me, please. I'm not talking about giving your money to able-bodied people who refuse to work. Ruth went out and worked harder than anyone else so that she could care for Naomi and for herself. I'm, I'm talking about giving yourself, your time, your attention, your friendship, your heart, your money, if God directs you, to people outside of your circle. Why? Because that's what Jesus did. Right? He didn't have money to give them or material gifts, so he gave them something infinitely more valuable than that and something much harder to give. Actually, he gave them himself, his life, his friendship, his time. He gave them the very best of himself. Now, take a second and look around this room and then ask yourself, how many people in here right now among these same people who come here week after week and sit in the same room with me and sing the same songs and drink the same coffee and study the same scriptures together with me week after week after week. How many of these same people do I actually have some kind of meaningful relationship with? I bet for most of us, it's probably a rather small number. And look, I understand you can't be best friends with everybody you meet, but listen, if when you look around this room, you see certain people and think to yourself, you know what, that's probably not someone I would hang out with or invite to lunch or over to my house or out for coffee. That's probably not someone I would naturally gravitate toward to ask them about their day or how their life is going because honestly, they're just not in my circle. You understand, that is the very attitude among his people that Jesus hates. 
fact, that's the attitude that he spent his entire ministry on earth trying to destroy by showing his followers what real love looks like. By blessing people outside of his circle, or at least what the religious people thought should have been outside of Jesus' circle. And it's exactly why he said by this, all people will know that you're my disciples. If you look alike and dress alike and act alike. No, that's not what he said. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples. If you like each other all the time, if you get along, if you share the same hobby. No, he didn't say that either. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples. If you have love for one another, John 13, 35. It's a hard and fast truth in the kingdom of God that every one of us needs to accept the fact that if you're a follower of Christ, then your circle, whether you want it to be or not, your circle is the church, all of it. Not just the parts you prefer, but every single member of it in your job, your calling is to bring others who are outside of that circle into your circle, which starts by being a blessing to those you would naturally normally have nothing to do with. By investing your time and interest and heart into relationships with people outside of that circle. Which, by the way, uh, never makes sense to the world outside of the church or to religious people inside of the church. Which just means you're doing it right because that's exactly how it was for Jesus. Uh, former Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia once said, have the courage to have your wisdom regarded as stupidity. Be fools for Christ and have the courage to suffer the contempt of the sophisticated world. Let's finish our story for today, verse 17 to the end of the chapter. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out, what, uh, out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? Where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her, daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young woman, uh, women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So Ruth processes the barley she'd gleaned for the day and came home to Naomi with about an ephah of grain. That's about five and a half a gallons of grain. It's 30 pounds of grain, enough for these two women to live on for a few weeks, which also happens to be a huge amount for one person to glean in a day. And it really, uh, it really underscores both Boaz's generosity and Ruth's work ethic, right? And of course, the first thing Naomi wants to know is where she was able to come up with that much grain in a day. And so Ruth says, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz, which gets Naomi's attention because Boaz was not only a respected, influential Israelite landowner in the community, but he was also a close relative of Naomi's deceased husband, Elimelech, as she explains. The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers, or kinsmen, it's the ancient Hebrew word ga'al, which is to say he's much more than just a family relation. 
He was one of the family representatives. He was a chieftain in the family of sorts. And in uh, ancient societies, including Hebrew society, there were what was called leveret marriage laws. And under leveret laws, if a, a woman's husband died before she could bear children by him, then it was the duty, the requirement of the dead man's brother or one of the kinsmen redeemers to bear children by her in order to continue the dead brother's line which is stipulated in the Mosaic Law in Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10, effectively redeeming the family line that would otherwise be lost by a childless widow. And so immediately, once Naomi finds out that Ruth made a connection with Boaz, a close relative of Elimelech, Naomi's gears start turning because she knows this new relationship could turn out to be much more than just a seasonal blessing for her and her daughter-in-law during the harvest. And in her excitement, Naomi does something that probably would seem to us to be nothing more than a passing statement, but it was actually of great significance as she pronounces a blessing over Boaz. May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Okay, and in ancient Hebrew culture, what Naomi did was the highest honor you could bestow on another person. She pronounces a blessing over Boaz for fulfilling one of the highest ideals among God's covenant people. And it's significant not only for Boaz, but for Naomi as well. Because in the very recent past, if you were here, chapter 1, Naomi was openly lamenting her belief that the Lord had gone out against her. Right, and testified against her and brought calamity upon her because her circumstances were bad. And yet here she is just a few days later when her circumstances changed dramatically. Here she is blessing Boaz and honoring God whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And in that profound moment of revelation for Naomi, we find her learning how to be a blessing out of honor to God. In other words, our circumstances are going to constantly change, right? We all know that. Our, our circumstances constantly change. They always do for everyone, but God's goodness never changes, even when our circumstances are anything but good. And look, at this point, Naomi's uh, far from out of the woods, right? They, they have food for a few weeks, which is great, but the harvest isn't going to last forever. And if Ruth falls out of favor with Boaz, they could be right back where they were in no time. But Naomi's beginning to realize, as we'll see, as the story continues to unfold over the next two chapters, that you can be a blessing to others even when your life isn't going as you like it to because God is good even when your circumstances are not. God is good even when your circumstances are not, right? If Naomi had had her way, Ruth went back home to her family. We'd be reading a very different story right now, but because Naomi did not get what she wanted, she wanted Ruth to go home. Because Naomi did not get what she wanted, her life is heading in a direction she never could have imagined for herself. Blessings beyond her wildest dreams. All right, listen. The very best thing that could ever happen to you Sometimes the very best thing that could ever happen to you is for you to not get what you want. Why? Because sometimes God has something better for you than what you want. And so the right response to him, even when you're not getting what you want, is to honor him by being a blessing to others, even when you don't feel blessed yourself. 
That's why we bless others to begin with. It's not because of how our lives are going at any point in time. No, that constantly changes. We bless others in order to honor God all the time. Why? Because he never changes. He's good all the time. Which takes us back to the beginning of this message. The manner in which we live and interact with this world on a daily basis. Listen, it has to be based on who God is. Not on how our lives happen to be going at any given point in time. Because first of all, that's when you begin to recognize just how blessed you are. Even when life isn't going how you want it to. Even in times of great personal need. When you focus on the goodness of who God is. And the fact that he created a plan for this world before he created the world itself. And a profound part of that plan happens to be you. Which means, although the journey getting there may not always look like you wish it did, where you're going to end up, listen, is infinitely better than anything you could ever create for yourself, even if you always got everything you ever wanted. Okay, God's plan for your life is always better than the one you envision for yourself. I don't know if we, if we always believe that, but it's true. God's plan for your life is always better than the one you envision for yourself. It's just as we see in this story, and when you truly begin to trust in that, and therefore bless others out of honor to him and who he is, rather than out of your own circumstances on, on any given day, that, that is what speaks volumes to those who are watching from outside of your circle. Because how you live your life, well, it's tangible evidence to the world that what you say you believe is actually true when they see it being lived out in your life every day as you pour out blessings on other people, regardless of your own circumstances. And you understand that is how God distributes his message of love to the rest of this world, not through you always being successful before others, but through you always being a blessing to others. Let's pray.